Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of season two of Dickinson Forevermore podcast. I am one third of your podcast host, Robin Detman. I'm a director and producer at LDW Films and I'm the producer nerd on this podcast. Hi, I'm Jess. I am a writer, actor, and the resident editing nerd of this podcast. Hi, I'm Jay Red. I'm a photographer. I'm a music producer. And like my queen, Emily Dickinson says, I dwell in possibilities. On this week's podcast, we'll be deep diving into Dickinson, season one, episode seven, we lose because we win. And episode eight, there is a certain slant of light. That's our host segment. And then we'll segue over to talk to our guest, Sam, pronouns they and she. You can find Sam on Twitter under Milsey, M-I-L-S-E-Y. And we're going to talk about their future in entertainment journalism. And then we're also going to talk a lot about the Dickinson family dynamic. Lots to dig in there. Take us to church, Jess. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, this church opens up on <laughs> a close-up <laughs> shot of a an election poster i believe being covered up by a circus poster which does foreshadow how the how the episode is is gonna go yep um i don't know it could be taken many different ways i feel but um Mm -hmm. when emily and lavinia first walk into the house and they're like really excited right they're ready to go to the circus and they're wondering why nobody is as excited as they are about it but at the same time clearly they do not care they just want to go a line that stuck out for me in that whole conversation was Emily saying, well, who cares about an election? We can't even vote. Mm-hmm. Right. She says that Ben laughs, but Edward, you can tell that he just doesn't care. Right. I mean, he's he's completely offended of course. In, in his own right. Like in his own right, I think he's offended, but he doesn't. He wants that. He wants the support of his family and knowing that his two daughters are not supportive of him, regardless if they can vote, because why would you want to vote? You're a woman. Well, he, yeah, he also pro- doesn't think they should vote. I mean, he never says anything about women voting. And that line comes up when Ben says, I'm sure you're a suffragette. And Mrs. Dickinson's like, how dare you? Like, I mean, perfectly <laughs> shows how she's just in that patriarchal bed that Edward has made that is his bed of honor and decency because he says what's honorable and decent. That's my take on it. I mean, that was pretty much the whole take on the episode, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, mean, uh, I guess. I guess. Yes. I mean, is. not the whole take, but that's like a general synopsis, I'd say, of, of how the whole episode is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Edward does typically... You know, we see the beginning of the spiral here for him, right? Yeah. Where he's like kind of devolving and being like, uh, the election is the only thing that is and ever will be, right? It's the only thing that he cares about more than anything. Well, don't you think, I mean, he's the center of the universe. He's the center of the Dickinson universe as far as he's concerned, right? You know, if his, if his uh, plate is chipped, the world is not right. I feel like you see him get very like, edgy you see him become very edgy and like you see like all the stress and the pressure of winning the election is getting to him so he's like lashing out right because of all that stress he's becoming very edgy and very kind of like unsteady yeah well well now he's he's you know gonna be going up to bat with all of these 
people potentially in his mind right he's already seen beyond what because he thinks he's a shoe in yeah initially right so he doesn't think at first well now I'm in the big leagues he just already assumes he's on top like the hubris I feel like he walks around like his pardon my friends like his shit don't stink right like he walks around high and mighty he is this this patriarchal ruler of Amherst right like he is the man in his in his city in his in his area right yeah I mean him thinking he's a shoo-in it's just that like that vanity that like he's just cocky well totally and like when he when he discovers Maggie and Maggie's upset about her brothers and she tells him and the way that he's standing and he you know he pushes his chest out and he's just like like he's making a little speech that honor and decency will prevail. I mean, yeah, you can see it. You can see it in him. So you see the lashing out later too of how it's just kind of building up and you know, where he's like this is ridiculous when when the results haven't come in because it's like inconveniencing him. You know. He has like this superiority complex just like the patriarchy. Yeah, well, and also going back to that moment with Maggie outside the barn, um you know, they're talking about the quote unquote know nothings, right? Yeah. Are we even gonna try to guess who they are? Because they've already made it evident that there were Republicans and Democrats already established during that time. So who are the know nothings? The Whigs or the Puritan party? Mm-hmm. Nativist? It just it doesn't sound right. Nativist political party and movement in the United States in the mid 1850s. No, I mean, that's what I thought when I saw the name. Yeah, it says right here, the party was officially known as the Native American Party prior to 1855. And therefore, it was simply known as the American Party. I mean, I don't know. This is what Wikipedia is telling me. Okay, but I don't. uh, With what I know of history, there is no Native American affiliation unless white men at that time who established law to begin with created that well i don't know like i said i'm literally reading off the wikipedia page because i was going to look it up though the know nothings were originally a secret society of men who opposed roman catholicism irish and other catholic immigration in many respects they were a populist and xenophobic movement weird what the party was progressive in its stances of issues of labor rights and the need for government spending and furnished support for an expansion of the rights of women well, I mean, that would make sense that Maggie and Ma- Maggie was having that conversation with Mr. Dickinson. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. She said her brothers were beat up mm-hmm. by the know nothings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The party entered a period of rapid decline after Fillmore's loss in 1856 presidential election. The remnants of the American party largely joined the Constitutional Union Party in 1860 and disappeared during the American Civil War. Well, that is really interesting. So they were an actual party. Yeah. That is historically accurate. Yeah. And also Maggie is a theme throughout this episode as well. I mean, she, her interactions with Edward and her lack of interaction with him, you know, her being the good maid that she is, is invisible, especially during that, you know, that big scene that that we'll get to 
beautiful writing and we talk about it later in the episode but mm, yeah yeah and and the whole honor and decency will prevail too is just another bell that's been rung throughout this episode as well yeah because yeah. we, we we really get to see kind of i mean we know politics are a dirty game right oh do we know <laughs> but how often do we get to peek back behind the curtain that no one else is doing the the work of i mean like you know when you see politicians and media usually if it's some kind of slander campaign somebody else the opposing party would have done that would have done the research right would have done all of that but i mean this time we see what it's like for a candidate with very limited experience to try to make it out there go to washington and make it make it mm. that far we don't often get to see kind of that i mean because we see him have like essentially a nervous breakdown he spirals the whole episode until until yeah, he finds we, out that he wins we see him behind closed doors he, yeah like i said i mean he's just edgy he's edgy the whole time you know he's 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 unsteady and and that facade of confidence that he displays it's it's fake it's a facade it's just he's 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 frail and brittle behind all of that well yeah and then he takes the instance of the poem the poem to unleash everything when he goes up to emily's room like he is completely wound up and it's not just about the poem obviously i don't know i mean he comes in there with so much velocity absolutely not and no he goes in there with, as you said velocity but it, he's drunk off of his own chaos when he comes in there oh yeah and ready to unload right like and yeah. here's the crazy thing is he knew who to go to he knew yeah. who, who to abuse he, he has emily on the on the bottom of his he, he's has her his foot on her neck like he obviously didn't go to austin austin also conspired to to publish this poem he didn't go to Austin. He didn't hand well, Austin his not. ass. He went to Emily and he he went and gaslighted and abused her and and Yeah. Well, that's what a lack of character will do, right? Mm -hmm. I swear, I I mean, I know we're going into the circus. Um, that slap that like you know they enhanced that slap too. I mean, that was just vicious. Vicious. the slap heard around the world oh my god <laughs> exactly yeah. and we do talk later about who did or did not hear it but like i think about sound design a lot um and i like to listen to sound design and we i um, are we do want to touch on that though i think um kind of a. you mentioned a lot that sue is always there sue is always around sue is always you know with emily connected in any sort of way right mm -hmm. um I think Jess has a really good point here, or I think we were I, in sorts kind of discussing it, like, and I think we touched on it a little bit, like, did Sue hear? Was Sue, like, Sue was there after the circus scene, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of snapped Emily out of it, but did she, like, I, I kind of had... I, I made Jess go back into the episode, and I was like, okay, so before when all the chaos starts to kind of unravel and then Austin reads the poem and then you see all these shots, right. Of, of 
the camera pans to, I think just said Ben first and then mm-hmm. Maggie and they both looked at Emily. I was like, who was the last person to look at Emily before Edward scolded her? Who this is it? what I want. This is what I wanted to know. And she goes, it was Sue. Sue was the last person before the camera panned to Edward. Oh, okay. And her her look, the look on her face was deep concern, right? So in my mind, I'm like, okay, if Sue was the last person to look at Emily with a very concerned look on her face before Edward scolded her and Emily was like, okay, I gotta go, right? Yeah. Don't you think, because she is staying in the same house as them, right? Yeah. Don't you think she's going to be like kind of peeking around the corner and kind of keeping an ear out? Well, also it's so loud. I mean, yes. But when I, when I just rewatched it again, when he's yelling at her and Maggie's on the other side, you see Maggie before the slap. It is so loud. And you know, houses built back then, they didn't have very thick walls. They didn't have insulation like we have it now. I absolutely 100% believe that Sue heard it. And Sue was already concerned and then heard the fight and then came in and then she was standing there for a while before Emily came out. I don't know. That's, that's just, I can't believe that not everybody didn't hear that in the house. That's just, that's my thing. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure they did because I mean, Austin knew about it. So it, for me, it all was just kind of like when I was like, okay, well, who was the last person to look at Emily before the camera pans to Edward and it was Sue. And I was just like, Hmm. And she doesn't look at her after that though. She doesn't look at her at all after that, which is interesting. All right. I think just had mentioned, just had mentioned that like, she looks at her and like the kind of look on her face was like, what are you doing? Or what did you just do? Oh yeah. No, totally. Wait, before we get to the circus, I think we talk I, I think we talk about this with Sam though about how Mr. D is like can you tell those silly girls to calm down and they're upstairs talking about like the Missouri compromise and everything <laughs> and again it just goes back to like the hubris of the patriarchy right of of thinking well of course the little girls are upstairs talking about whatever frilly thing and I'm down here doing important things hey didn't I say something to that nature earlier actually like mm-hmm I said that it was interesting that Lavinia said Republicans were the true progressives um, when during this time, and as we know, Abraham Lincoln is president um, during this, you know, period of their life, and he was a Republican lawyer, but it has genuinely throughout history have kind of swapped tables back and back, you know, back to back like that. Yeah. Speaking of a dark cloud like politics, uh, Emily does say in that same scene that there's going to be a war. A million men will die. A million snowflakes will fall on their graves. Mm -hmm. How foreshadowing, huh? That's right. Well, she does. She rides around in a carriage with death, so she would know these things. I mean, but as the audience, we already knew because he said it. It's so brilliant how everything just ties in together. Like the more you you're sitting here during the rewatches and you're like, holy crap, like everything just ties in. It's so woven, like so perfectly. It really is. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so before we get to the circus, I had something about the eat shit Emily line. So I remember reading Anna saying that when she first started, Elena was telling her that, you know, we're going to have updated language, but what's underneath that language would be something that they would be feeling in the moment at that time. I feel like that's an important, uh, an important point because the updated language is still so grounded in character in that moment but also takes the human experience a hundred years later, that would be the same. And I think we kind of touched on it in another, in, a, in, in another podcast, but like, it's just so perfect. What else would Sue say to her besides eat shit, Emily? And it was just such a good delivery. Not at all what she would have said in the time, but because it's so grounded in just kind of the exhausted, like, you know, state that Sue is in where she's just basically in survival mode. Right. And now she's like, okay, I guess I'll be this housewife. Well, I mean, it's also reactionary, too, because she, for context, I mean, she's reacting to what Emily said to her. And Emily's like, you know, I don't want to say confidence. We'll say her forgetting her privilege, I, I guess you could say. Like, you know, she walks up to to Sue and she's like, you're really leaning into this whole housewife thing, aren't you? And that's why Sue says, eat yes! shit, Emily. That's what I'm saying. It's like, what else would you say? It's like, you put me here. <laughs> like, well, like, There's just so much you could say in that moment, right? And then also, it's, again, yeah. I love Emily, but she is so in her own world that like she doesn't even see what Sue has to do all the time. And actually, when, they're, when she, I thought about this too, when she's with Austin and they're talking about digging up the baby, she knows that Sue's mom died in childbirth. I don't think Sue might have told her how fearful she is of having a baby, but like you don't even see that kind of cross her mind. I don't know. Emily's still in her own world. Emily has not, Emily has not gone past her own boat. And that, that moment proves it to just I mean, be, kind me, of be like, like, wow, you're really leaning into this thing that you're forced into that I helped you get into. Mm, bummer. You know? I mean, for me, it's like, uh, you go back to the point where like, Edward was like, promise you'll stay here, right? So you have the option to like, you don't have to go get married. Nope. You don't have to go leave your pretty little life and and do things out of survival. And like Sam says, right, later in, in our guest episode, it's like Sue becomes Emily for Mrs. Dickinson. She's like, oh, you know, I still think she's just been waiting to give this book away. Like how long has she been waiting to give away the frugal housewife? And now, you know, that look she gives Sue when Sue's just like dressing a turkey or whatever. You see it right there where she's like, there's the daughter I've been looking for. And Emily doesn't even get that. Right? Ooh, that can't, wait, that can't wait till next episode though. When yeah. we dive into the next episode. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Are we at the circus? so i think we talked about this before i've definitely talked about what this circus meant to me did did when you saw did how did you both react to it like individually did you have any personal reaction to to kind of the journey that emily was on just through the circus itself uh i feel that them calling her a freak kind of just I, I feel like in a way I did connect to it just growing up and always being different mm -hmm. and still today like I've, I've I've said this several times on the podcast I'm a little girl from the hood so when I am a nerd it's a little bit 
out of place, out of sorts. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes feel like a freak. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like it talked to me in that way. And then also my queerness. I think we all kind of go through that in, in our queer journey that we kind of feel out of place or like your society kind of makes you feel like, oh, this is not normal. You're a freak. You're different. Yeah. But then did you also feel the kind of thing of like, like, did it make that weird like, relief? Yeah. And also you're with your other freaks. I mean, I talked about it, that that was when I kind of found my tribe in a way, but also just really did accept the fact that like, I'm a little freak and I always will be. And accepting I love that part your, of myself. Accepting your differences and stuff like that. And then yeah. embracing them. I think I finally have gotten to the point where I am. I remember. So whenever I have like family over, uh, they like to, you know, my room is the nicest room. So I would like let them stay in my room. And I have an uncle that always comes over, right? And I I have my pride flag on my wall, right? And usually before he would come, I would take it down and I would put it away. Now he comes and I leave it up and everyone knows. And my walls are painted and I have all this stuff that defines me it's getting to that point where you fully embrace it and you don't care who sees it and you are now up front and center. Yeah. Uh, for me, I feel like it spoke to me on a more subconscious level, like for like seeing it through the lens of Emily, you know, I feel like that's her subconscious telling her different things. Like, She's got a sneaking suspicion about Ben, but she doesn't know what. And then suddenly he's also a freak kissing another freak in the circus. Christmas cravat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I feel like it's her subconscious collecting all of these things that she's currently going through. Mm. and it's blending them all together mm-hmm. and her referencing herself as a freak mm-hmm. and other people doing it has stood out for her for so long that it's become the most like prominent part of this dreamscape of her being in the circus and I feel like I all of these little little things that she knows but can't say out loud mm. is coming to a forefront for mm-hmm. her in this moment I've always kind of like analyzed her, I would say daydreams, right? When she goes into her imagination, I really like compare them to dreams because whenever you fall asleep and you have a dream, for me, it's kind of rare when I do have a dream, but when you go to sleep and you have a dream and dreams are often vivid or they're like super random sometimes, right? Like you could be having a dream of cutting up or chopping trees, right? What does that mean? You're stunting your own growth, right? Like if you interpret your own dreams. So like, when you dream, it's really just your subconscious bringing your outside problems to life, right? In your brain and helping you work through them. I feel like that's how I, I see Emily going into her imagination. She's really just taking a trip into her subconscious. Mm-hmm. So I fully agree with you there, Jess. And she's like, all her problems are coming to the forefront of her mind. And it's kind of her, imagine, her imagination is making her deal with them. Deal with those thoughts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've shared what it was for me personally, but I just always go back to that moment, which is one of my favorite moments in the entire show is when Sue comes in and she turns around and it's some of the most beautiful acting I've seen that seems like relief and pain 
I don't want to say joy, but there is so much packed into that moment. And because there's so much packed into that moment, it's really, it really allows us to be able to interpret it into what, what we're feeling or what we're getting through that moment. I let, and I, I had to say, I just, you know, I haven't really talked about the cinematography or the art yet of the show that much actually in our rewatch, but um, I'm watching the circus show, you know, it got so inventive with the camera work. Um, the camera was just like literally dancing with Emily going in and out, pulling focus as she's walking through, going to the the big circle. Um, they use like the use of close-ups with wide angle lens, right? Which distorts the face, which they never do because normally you'll use like a really long lens to make people look good. Um, and then I had to shout out the sound design, which again, I think I, I feel like I heard Ella. I just, maybe I just hear her all the time. I don't know, but I thought I heard Emily, like the same, with the same tone of when she had the camera right in the beginning could be nothing but this i was listening really close to the sound design after that and so call out to philippe messeder who did the adr editing the sound designer sound effect and the dialogue editor like it was so beautifully blended and all the sounds that like when you really start to listen to all the separate tracks and that i thought that was the masterpiece and you mean do you also mean like with the music as well like when you yeah. hear different different layers of the music being yeah. put over oh. this so then and then usually so he did the sound design and if you have the sound designer they're usually working with the sound mixer who brings in all the tracks and then elena would probably be sitting there with them in the final mix but they would come in with their own first draft and bring things forward and bring things back but you can hear there are so many tracks and then of course the great music by Drum and Lace and Ian Linquist. Um, it's just so, it's just so beautifully well done. I like, I like personally how like everyone obviously is in like circus garb, right? And then you pan to Sue and she's just in a regular schmegular clothes, right? With her, plan, with her candle. With her little candle. And it's, she's the only one that's dressed regularly, right? And she's the only one. Everyone, every, yeah, and she's, you know, kind of out of sorts in the out of sorts place. Well, also, again, the beauty of this writing is that Emily turns around and she says, I went to the circus. That's all she says. And who else would get that except for Sue? Absolutely. And it's so crazy. I, I see. I, I saw like, obviously, you, you said happiness. And then like, I, I see that as well. It's it's euphor It's euphoria. Yeah. Euphoria. It's, it's just like it's euphoric. And it's, it's almost like pain but yeah. you're like enjoying the pain so the beautiful yeah that was that was emmy right there like honestly that moment there i don't think that's easy acting Haley steinfeld okay well I, do you guys ever notice that i do ship i was telling megan that i was like cake i do <laughs> all throughout the podcast <laughs> i'm ship um <laughs> one last thing i want to say and this is a call out to virginie she noticed this and i was writing the note and it was really funny i saw her tweet so going back to the iconic hand shots that we have with emily and sue emily and ben do it but they never lock fingers they play with each other's hands but they never actually come together which i thought was beautiful and then when i watched it again also, Emily, you see how she's got a little smile on her face and then the smile drops a little and absolutely think that was a moment of her thinking back to Sue just for a moment. Well, yeah, but and and also at that time, right, this was right after learning that the poem won the contest. Right. But if we think back for a moment in all of it, 
because she she didn't want credit for the poem and stuff right but yeah but in that moment we see that she gets incredibly offended that not only did Austin put a title on it but he dedicated it to Sue not knowing that it was written about Sue (laughs) (laughs) or did he no he does he try not to know yeah willful ignorance no no Mm -hmm. not even not even willful (laughs) like involuntary on his part like (laughs) Austin not something that I think he fully grasps but um you know right after the the whole circus reverie we we learned that edward wins the election um, oh yeah that's right it's not over no, <laughs> i'm like no. okay let's move yeah, on so it's not over no, we go to the maggie that we talked about later now <laughs> yes um but i want to talk about mrs dickinson in this moment okay. because this is the moment we see <laughs> the very beginning of her spiral right because mm. he wins and he's like excited and she says, yes, this is the happiest I've ever been in the most apathetic way that anyone Look, could literally so say good. anything ever. So good. Let me just say, Mrs. Dickinson, you said it's the beginning of her spiral. Baby, that lady been spiraling from the jump, okay? Yeah, well, I'm we learned in season that. three, it, we learned in season three, she's been spiraling since she was to be wed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's true. She spiraled right down the staircase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which leads us to the Christmas episode. Did you notice you, that you, Apple put this in their Christmas episode? Which I'm all good yes. for. In fact, yes. I think they should do another Christmas episode at some point, just randomly. Anyway. I mean, I'm still waiting for my cravat, so. <laughs> okay. What do you mean you're still Maybe waiting Santa. for your cravat? Santa will bring you your Christmas cravat. I want my Christmas cravat. All right, episode eight. Okay, all right, episode eight. The very first thing that I I kind of noted, and I I feel like for this episode when I was rewatching it, I was paying attention to so much detail, and I don't even know why, but I'm so glad I did. Um, beginning of the episode, we see Mr. Dickinson's about to depart, right? And Austin was basically, you know, asking, "Hey, Dad, you know, can I, you know, do you give me permission to approve, you know?" some plans for the house right and mr edward goes austin this is your house you're the master of this house and then austin takes it upon himself and he says well since i'm the master of my own house i might as well be the master of your house while you're gone so that for me was like foreshadowing for what we see in the future right in season three where emily feels all these ties and restraints um writing mr dickinson's will wait how do you mean though at the at the end there like she's feeling those constraints when writing his will like do you mean in the moment when she realizes he's leaving everything to austin yeah she sees her future and she sees that she regardless like she still has a master and the master will even if it ceases to be her father it will be austin or it'll be austin's son right yeah so that for me that that whole sequence between austin and mr dickinson where he's like, okay, well, you are the master of this house while I'm gone, right? That was foreshadowing for me for that season three, that big season three and that weight that Emily feels. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there was actually a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of little, like, 
a lot of little things placed in this episode too I feel a lot of little nuggets right Mm -hmm. so then we see Mr. Dickinson he realizes that one person hasn't said goodbye to him he goes inside and then something that kind of rang to me but I'm not really going to touch on it too much is when Emily says there are no flowers in winter right I was like oh you're right so that's why winter be so sad sometimes right but then you see Edward you know and we're going to touch on this when he is manipulating her, right? Where he goes, you know, Emily's like, well, when you leave, I might not be here. He's like, where will you go? But Smug. then as he, yeah, as he leaves, right? <laughs> as he goes out and he gets in his carriage and his carriage drives off, lo and behold, in the background, what do you see? A whole bunch of sheep. <laughs> sheep. The one sheep. time, the one time, Jay. The one time <laughs> just did not put it in her notes I was like okay I felt it in my bones as I was re-watching the episode I was like I'm not gonna put this in my notes because Jess is gonna cover it but then I paused and I was like no 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 I feel in my bones that Jess will not see these sheep for whatever reason and that that whole situation was just like so beautifully placed and like I said everything is just woven so nicely yeah I mean there's I, I feel like there's a lot a lot a lot of details I think some of them are more obvious and then some of them people would actually have to do research on to find. You got to really like be paying attention, like meticulously, like these, if you, for like a split second, because it was a split second shot where you see the carriage take off. She's, Emily's looking out the window and you can see the sheep in the background. But I mean, to go back to, to go back to just what Mr. Dickinson does there before he leaves Emily, he's like, where are you going to go? Like, it, it's it's that cockiness again. Oh, yeah. Emily, where would you go? Again, beautifully written. Speaking of which, I know this is not really a segue into any one thing in particular um, as far as the episode is concerned, but I thought about this, and I brought it up to Jay uh, just before we got on the call, but but I thought about something pertaining to Sue, um, and that was a sue never deliberately stood in between like the animosity between her like edward and emily but she was totally fine with standing in between emily and austin and whatever issues that came of that but she never once tried to intervene and austin in his own right was just as powerful even though he you know, no. had his no, he didn't have the same clout as his father did, but he was just as successful in the sense that he was a lawyer, an up and coming lawyer. He was, you know, trying to to build this life for himself, even if it was off the back of his father. But still, Sue never tried to stand in the in between. But she Edward can't. I mean, I, I don't know. I gotta. I must. I must protest. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the way the pa- the way the patriarchy was that then too the way family was set up until edward dies he's it he owns everything he gives austin things he gives him he lets austin do this he lets austin he well he keeps austin right <clears throat> by giving him a house he is not in the same power position yet and how could sue stand up to mr dickinson in her position I mean, if he pisses, if she pisses him off, like what's going to happen? I don't think she can. She didn't. And I mean, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, she didn't have the agency. She didn't have the agency as Sue Gilbert. She had agency as a woman. Uh, Yeah. I don't, I don't think that would, I I just, I don't see that on the same level. 
at all. Well, that's not necessarily true because even in American time of that era, she would have some agency because she was not fully a member of that household until she was to be wed to Austin, whether or not she was staying there. Yeah. If he raised his hand to strike Sue, if she ever tried to intervene, she could have him, regardless of his clout, put in jail. Yeah, and regardless but I mean, also, of the fact that she's a woman, well, she could still have had him in jail had she ever done that. Well, then why couldn't she have had the guy that raped her in jail, Jess? And she, she said, I mean, she does mention that briefly in this episode, but I'm just she saying, doesn't. You're giving women too much agency back then. And the no, other thing is, not even she's very then. passive in this season, too. So maybe, you know what? I'll give you this in season three. Maybe in season three, she would have done it. But in her character arc, she couldn't have done it. But I also, I don't know. I think that's really dangerous for her. I don't know. Go okay, ahead. Okay, well, you're going to give her that, but I'm going to take it back. Okay, listen, even in today and age, all right, if you try to go up against a wealthy white man, guess what? You're not going to take him to jail because he got the money. He going to get his way out. Okay, I don't know. I don't know, because yeah. I mean, if you think about today and age that you can try to take a, a rich, wealthy white man down and it's so near impossible to do that. Think about it back then. Yeah, but I will. But I will. I will give you in season three that if Edward tried to do shit after that in season four, I bet you she would have done something. But I think combined women's place and then also where Sue is in her character arc being a passive character. I mean, she's basically shit's just happening to her. She's not moving her own life ahead or she hasn't found a way to be able to do that. So, I don't know. Well, I'm just saying that her her stance, her position on the family as a whole even, she has no problem saying it out loud. We know this. She has no problem saying that she disagrees with their ways or... I mean, I definitely think she was a strong up. woman. I definitely think she was a strong woman even back then before marrying Austin. Like... I mean, she was a boss in her own way, of course, absolutely. So, I mean, I can see where you're where you're coming from and where you're, you know, we definitely see boss bitch Sue. We definitely see boss, boss bitch Sue in season three. For season sure. three, but I don't, but I mean, character arc, I don't think, I don't know. I just don't see her doing that. I haven't seen her, you know, I feel like she has to go through that. And I think that's what season two is about too, but she's still trying to find her way. Yeah, she had. I, I, I don't feel like she's grabbed life by the neck just yet. No, she hasn't been like, "This is what I want." I'm tired of you people, you crazy Dickinsons, dictating what my life is gonna be. Um. So low key, hold on, because I'm remembering something that just brought up, right? And I don't know if we put it in the notes to talk about this. Sue kind of does call the shots in her own way. Jess, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. It is in this episode towards the end, right? So we're going to drop that when bomb she claims Emily, later. you mean? No, 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 no. We're going to drop the bomb a little bit later. All right. I think it's at the very end of the episode, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, okay. how about, okay. It's so later. why don't we just talk about it? So let's get to, <laughs> wait, we haven't even talked about the party. That's what I'm saying. Let's talk about the party. All right. So let's do it. Right. We see Emily cooking up a storm, right? Whereas we don't normally see her cooking up a storm. We see Ben come in right to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And obviously I feel like, look, this is such a crazy moment for me because I feel like we were so busy paying attention to Sue being jealous over Ben and Emily simping over each other in front of her salad 
that we didn't pay attention to the fact that when Ben left, right, Sue was like, you can't marry him. You can't do this. Like, what are you doing, right? You're not a frugal housewife. And Emily's like, well, what if I can be? And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, I can't live with my dad forever, right? Yeah. Like, you see this desperation come out of her. And that's when it kind of clicks for me. All these moments with Ben when she's holding his hand but not interlocking fingers and you see this a little this little bit of regret in her it's all it's all a sense of despair for her I feel like I feel like she's doing everything out of desperation with Ben because she sees him like an escape he's the gay best friend that she could be with but it's out of desperation also he does see her he does see her I believe the term you're looking for is gbf (laughs) gbf gff gffgbbg is, I believe it's the proper term. Jess, look it up. Gay bestie, <laughs> okay. gay bestie, look it up. Okay. Just look okay. it up. Okay. All right. So jumping Excuse into me. the party scene, right? Emily has kicked, made the whole damn dinner, right? She's been, you know, swerving and serving in the kitchen. We got this nice spread on the table. And Miss Dickinson finally decides to make an appearance, right? She all drunk. She's falling, stumbling. And we get to the part where Aunt Lavinia is talking, right? I love Aunt Lavinia. I love when she she has her little spotlight moment and she's telling the girls, if you want something, you just have to reach out and grab it. And then there's a moment where the camera pans to so many people, right? And you see them all taking their chance, right? The camera pans to Mrs. Dickinson and she is reaching for the pitcher of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, she said, give me that brandy. She said, all right. She said, all I got to do is reach out and grab it. Let me grab it, baby. Okay. So then the camera pans to Lavinia, Miss Vinny, right? And she's over here grabbing somebody's hand and putting it where places where, where it shouldn't be at the dinner table. Okay. I mean, <laughs> she seemed like she was having a good time. I'm just saying. Look, she was living her best life. Okay. She Amen. was. She really was. <laughs> whole time Lisa May Alcott is trying to tell her, her is trying to pitch her stories right and Vinny's just over here just yeah having orgasms okay like yeah Luis is over here pitching the plot to little women and uh and Moby Dick <laughs> and Moby Dick Moby Dick don't forget about Moby Dick oh Anna how fitting Anna back on Twitter yeah yep yep and then so here's the crazy thing as Aunt Lavinia is talking and I don't know if anyone really like noticed it because it was such a split second and the camera doesn't even pan over to them right but as Aunt Lavinia is talking about her her cruise and her experiences and how anyone all these women should take you know advantage of stuff and like travel Austin asked Sue if she would go on a cruise without him after he dies right and it's 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 like background noise it's background noise right because the, the camera doesn't even pan to them. And it happens so fast under the conversation of Aunt Lavinia, right? And you hear Jane answer him. She doesn't even let Sue get a word in. And he, she goes, oh, I bet she would. Damn. That's funny. Of course she would. <laughs> she did. She did. She went she to was, Europe. I mean, it was when she was in her did. She had to wait a while. She had to wait for her kids to grow up. But yeah, like, but she still did it. Of course she did. She's a badass Sue Gilbert. Boss bitch Sue. Badass. Okay, can we talk about the ownership moment with Sue? When Sue was like, screw y'all, Emily's mine. <laughs> when she's like, 
um, when Austin's like, why don't you play some music? And Sue's like, I will for Emily. She owns Emily in that moment. I mean, she plays this sad song <laughs> that she knows Emily's going to like, and you watch Emily react to that. I felt like that was a really great And moment. it's about winter. And she was telling Ben, like, winter. yeah, she was <laughs> telling Ben winter, yeah. in that moment, Emily's in love with me. Watch. And Ben saw it. Like, Ben, ben was, was watching Emily, Emily the like whole time. Yeah. So that was that was a moment of Sue taking some control in a way. Very passive. But you also see Austin. You also see Austin behind Emily, and you see him kind of like, you can <gasps> see the face he's making. Wait, what? Again. Willful ignorance. Anyway. Yep. Can, we talk about the, can we talk about the moment just before that when Mrs. Dickinson is drunk singing? Oh, my God. Oh my god! And both Vinnies and both Vinnies like rocking out. Oh. Both Vinnies have to come and and Jane. get her out of there. And she goes, "Oh my god, Vinny, I love you. Oh my god, Vinny, I love you. You're lovely. Oh my so goodness, lovely. that was that was hysterical. So good. And then we talk about when we were with Sam. We talk about that moment when they're alone, when Emily goes up to her. Yeah, we talk about Miss Dickinson mm. being mega needy and reflecting the Inferno scenes. Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. it's time for you to drop the bomb. What's up? Okay, <laughs> actually, before we drop the bomb, oh, drop I'm the telling bomb, you, you're killing me. It we is... go back to part of the end of the episode, right? Where Mr. Dickinson gifts Emily the conservatory, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes to Emily, who thinks flowers are nicer than people. Boom. Foot on top of the neck. Here's the manipulation. Here's how he gets her back. Here's how he reels her back in and keeps him keeps her in his grasp. So now just drop the bomb. You know, this bomb has to do with Sue, right? Yes. So Sue. Okay. Okay. You we were saying Sue is a boss bitch. Even in season one, she has full control of her realm, of her world, of her, you know, of herself, of her poise. Okay. Drop the bomb. <laughs> okay so in the moment where emily and sue are in her tiny little bed together right um sue says what i consider to be the most underrated line of the episode for me which was i guess it was selfish of me to think i could marry austin and that you'd just stay here in this house like a pet or something like one of Lavinia's cats, always there for me to cuddle when I felt like it, to forget about when I didn't. I think that that foreshadows their relationship for the rest of the series. And I think all of that underlying possessive nature of Sue that we see, we see it really form in this episode. And I feel like what she says in this scene really sets the tone for how things are going to look like in season three, especially. But then we also see I'm how you remember whenever um, Emily is telling Sue how Ben makes her feel, right? How he makes her feel seen, right? And then mm -hmm. we go to that scene between Austin and Sue, where Sue asks Austin if he sees her, if he listens to her, right? Yeah. And yeah. that is when Sue takes full control of her situation a situation that me and Jess were kind of tiptoeing around mm, yes. and this is what I mean that Sue was making power plays here okay drop the bomb now here's drop what, the bomb here's what I think I think that 
Sue taking control was her showing up in that bed and her saying basically like, I never thought I'd be jealous of a man because she's admitting her love for her in a very roundabout way. And Emily is like, you're jealous. And she's like a little, I think that is two people saying, I love you. I love you too, in a way that they can't or even express it. And that's Sue's right there. Sue is taking control. And I think actually it starts when she sings the song. She's ba- she she hooks her in and she's like, remember who you love. But in right? another instant, in another instant, and this is yeah. where this is where it gets crazy, when she straddles Austin, there's a there's a there's another reason she does that. Or another reason we think she does that. Jess, what is it? I think it's because she already knows that she's pregnant and she's trying to cover her tracks by sleeping with Austin for the chance that he would believe. It's his baby. Power moves, baby. <laughs> I don't. For controlling, I don't know. controlling I, a situation that may not be controllable. Yeah. You know what? I mean, I think that could be. I would have to watch it again. I didn't see any of that. I don't. So I don't know. <laughs> you blacked out because it was a whole scene. No, no. I, <laughs> no, I saw her. I saw her realizing, right, that Emily's really in love with this guy and that. Austin is Austin is her out. Austin, I mean, she's marrying Austin and she's trying to have a connection with him. It could very well be that, but I didn't see any other intention behind her except for well, just I mean, she's, like, so she's talking I about... need you to be, yeah, I need you to be that thing for me. And he's like, I hope so. And she doesn't get it, but she's grabbing onto everything she can. Now, was there another thing going on? I never felt there was something else. So to me, I'm kind of like, I don't know. But I would watch it again because knowing there Ella's was like acting, layers. I don't know if those were acting hmm. choices or what, but there were layers. Yeah, I'll go back and there. look. I'm not saying no, but I never and got I'm, anything. I'm, but... The only reason I'm attaching that to that is because whenever Louisa May Alcott is talking about, well, I'm not going to be a governess. And she says, yeah, no, bad option, right? There were little bombs every single step. Well, that's like, yeah, you'll get raped, bomb. <laughs> well, no, like, but there, they were, yeah, but there were like little, I feel like there were like little strings woven in to that point that made me think, oh crap. Or we were we were both kind of on the same brainwave. You know, I don't know. That that I felt like that scene was loaded. I was just gonna say, I think you're both right. I think that there it's underlying and there are layers, and I think that she is trying to cover up you know essentially what happened and this is a good way that she knows how she can be efficient with um that she can control but also in the same breath i feel like she was longing for that connection that she wants she basically wants what emily has in the moment but she doesn't get to have it the way that emily does because of emily's freedom even if it's not about her specifically. And I feel like Austin's lack of intellect. But she also tells him in that moment, doesn't she, about being scared about having a baby. Yeah. yeah. So that's what so, kind I mean of that led is me she hasn't think. even said that. I'm I'm pretty sure she hasn't even said that to Emily. Because you see that hit no, her when she's where... at the graveyard. So I don't I don't see that 360 of like, oh well then I that's don't what know. made me think. That's what made me think. I don't because... you know. Interesting. I'll totally. I mean, it could be. I'm not saying no because, like, who am I to say no? But like, I didn't get any of that. That doesn't mean it's not there. I don't know. That's what I love about this show. I know, right? Totally. And because there's so many 
like rich moments in there that we can dissect and watch and feel different things dissect and watch gosh darn it elena smith making me feel things the things you do doing the things you do so good these episodes were so good okay so full of nuggets i know all right well is it time to go talk to sam yeah Hey, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Sam, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm 20 now. I, I live in Canada. Right now I'm, I'm studying media in university. And I, I just, I really love Dickinson. Like I, I started it last year and it just blew me away in relation to like the stuff I'm studying. I love I love analyzing stuff and there's almost nothing you can't analyze about this show. I could watch it like a million times and still pick up on things that I never noticed the first time. (laughs) And yeah, I just, I hope I can share my like perspective and hopefully get even more people watching it. Absolutely. What are you studying? So right now it's, it's, it's just media and I can branch into journalism, which is what I'm hoping to do. Awesome. So, uh, you guys want to dive into kind of a psychological abuse realm for Dickinson, how that dynamic is amongst the family. Yeah, definitely. Let's get into it. Sam, why don't you take us off on what your aspect is on how do you see the parents inflicting this abuse onto the siblings? Well, I think the the main thing is we... We, in like the obvious sense, will always see it from Emily's eyes and her abuse with Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson is very obvious, but it's important to remember that both Austin and Lavinia and even Sue, like they've dealt with stuff um, from them. And as well, Mr. Dickinson, his is very obvious as well, like what he's doing and anyone watching could know that what he's doing is wrong and he's being abusive well with mrs dickinson they've written it where it's meant to be like like we laugh at it because it's part of mrs dickinson is a big part of the comedy of the show so uh, like even though she's kind of saying things that today wouldn't wouldn't be right we kind of laugh it off because of how her character is written i guess i can see where that is i mean and also in real life as well you would think that you know, when you see certain people say certain things, you're like, oh, well, it's because they're this way, or you find some way to kind of justify that behavior. And especially of that time, I would think that they had no reason to dr- to try to justify anything. They were the parents and they never thought they were wrong. Those are two really good points because we do laugh a lot at Mrs. Dickinson and she says some really psychologically damaging things. You know, especially, especially Davini. I think we talked about that on the last episode. That's a really interesting point, how comedy kind of diffuses that, uh, that psychological abuse. Yeah, like, um, as I was watching the, the Christmas episode again, at the, when she comes downstairs after literally being upstairs all day, making Emily, like, do all the work, bring in the guests, be a host, as what was typically her job. Um, she just came down and she 
she was just like, oh, I'm so glad you guys did this. And like, but it was in a funny way where you couldn't help but laugh because she was being so ridiculous about it. She she doesn't she didn't really care to have that responsibility just because her husband was gone and she was putting it on her kids. And I mean, if that happened now, I I wouldn't be comfortable with that if my mom just like stopped doing stuff for us just because my dad was gone. I, I don't know. But for that time, like just said, it kind of makes sense. Well, she's like, yeah, we, ta we were talking about Emily, you know, in her youth being selfish you know, and kind of seeing the world through just through her lens and, you know, just now starting in these episodes to maybe see the world around her. But Mrs. Dickinson is purely that way. Everything is always in reference to herself, which again, they make a joke out of. I forget there's one, I don't know what episode it's in. Oh, I think it's, <laughs> it's when Emily is having the problem with her eyes. And then mm -hmm. I think, doesn't she literally say, why is this happening to me? And Emily's like, it's not <laughs> happening to you, mom. You know, and we laugh. And I've, ex I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced like a degree of that. Um, to touch on this, um, I, I like to use the reference like hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to use Austin as an example. I mean, throughout the seasons, we see him develop from being kind of like this spoiled brat, right? And then um, towards the end, um, like season three, he kind of becomes this like villain in a way it's really him just trying to cope with this trauma. It's really him just trying to actually deal with it. So what's your take on Austin's art and reference to him, like dealing with the psychological abuse from his parents? Yeah, I think out of, out of the siblings, his was like a very gradual kind of thing. While Emily's was like, like we saw it all the time while with, with Austin, like there were bits of season one where his dad was like, no, you have to stay here. You can't go out and move away from here. And then later on in season two, his dad was like, oh, you need to, you need to be more responsible. You're being irresponsible. You need to like grow up or whatever. And then in season three, Austin's just like sick of it. And I feel like that's a very relatable thing. Like we can only tolerate abuse and like um, mistreatment for so long before we, we put our foot down and it doesn't matter like how it affects the people around us. Uh, we're, we're thinking about ourselves after being hurt for so long. And like you said, hurt people tend to hurt other people. Yeah. Jess, um, Austin's actually one of your favorite characters. What do you feel like? Of course, he, he was kind of being a little, I don't know, a lot of people thought he was being very spiteful or bitter towards, you know, his dad or Emily. What do you feel like it really was like for him? I mean, he was just trying to deal with his own baggage. Yeah, I mean, for him to unpack all of his own trauma, I mean, we see him, you know, as through each season, we see him go through that phase, right? Season one, we see him young, privileged, you know, young man. And, and then season two, we see him as still on that privileged route but trying to find his way and then season three we see him kind of ready to unpack all of it and he's hurting literally everyone around him and is unapologetic not only about his trauma but about confronting it as well and I think it it speaks to his ability to outright demand what he needs when he needs it because I mean, <clears throat> speaking to the abuse of more than just Austin, Austin though, is, is like 
with Emily, we see that psychological abuse, but we also see the physical abuse. With Austin, we only see the psychological. But how far back does it actually go? Because we only see that introduction of him getting his wings clipped in season one when they're like at that precipice of like adulthood, right? So I feel like him doing that was kind of taking charge, taking agency over that entire situation, taking the power out of everyone else's hands and putting it into his own so that he can change that dynamic for the future because he does not want to be the father that his father was to him. But in the process, I think we kind of see like, um, going back to like that reference of hurt people hurt people. I kind of want to use this analogy of like, you know, whenever you have a rotting fruit, like for example, if one tomato is rotting and then you have a whole batch of healthy tomatoes and you put that rotting tomato in the middle, that rotting tomato starts to rot all the other tomatoes. I feel like in a, in a way, like as he was going through, I think the, the very peak of, of him trying to figure himself and his trauma out, right? He was like, not just in change hurting everyone around him, but like rotting them too. You know, we see them all going through like their little, their little batches and their little bitterness. And I think we see it really highlighted in the Inferno scenes. Like you see how spiteful Lavinia was. You see how like, just everyone is just super just over the top. Yeah. I mean, well, they were all an extended version of the worst version of themselves, I'd say. What do y'all think about um, the parallel of when Austin is having the argument with Sue in season three and he kind of lunges at her? I was just thinking of the parallel between that and when uh, Mr. Dickinson slaps Emily. Do you feel like that could have been like the peak? Like when I'm telling you like the peak of his thing, he was lashing out at everyone and everyone else is kind of like getting the brunt of it. And they're also in in ways also lashing out towards each other. Like you can feel the tension everywhere. No, totally. And then also I'm just wondering internally, you know, we've never seen him do that before. We've never seen him get aggressive like that before. And he was drunk, right? I think he was drinking in that scene, but that might've been a turning point for him because he never wanted to be that Edward, but there he is lunging at his wife. I'm wondering if that did register, you know, if the writers were thinking about how that might've registered with him. I don't know what starts to happen after that chronologically, but. The the next episode after that is, is when Sue, like she tells him not to divorce him. So I'm thinking like that is his turning point because every episode onward from that, he's trying to, He's trying to fix himself and like fix the like, I guess, family name because he doesn't want to be like his dad. And I think that fight in episode five, even after he says, hit me like you used to hit her, like that was his point because he, I think he also noticed how how what he said affected Emily. And despite them like being at a so-called war at the time, I think he still cared about, about Emily oh, and about what she was going through and like... Yeah. I, I know the the like fandom has a has very like contrasting opinions about him saying that. Like I think it it made sense for his character, but some people like they thought he was going too far to like publicly share that kind of thing. Another interesting thing is that with episode seven, we actually see that Maggie is the only one that we know knew Mr. Dickinson slapped Emily, and we see that she goes after him for that because she makes like a a sarcastic comment saying, oh, it's a relief that you got elected. And then we don't find out that anyone else knew until season three. I was wondering, like, 
did Sue, what did Sue hear? Because Sue comes in the middle of Emily and her imagination, right? Because right after that slap, she goes into the circus. And then Sue's like, Emily, what happened? And so I was just wondering this on this rewatch, what did Sue hear? Because she's asking her what happened. And so did she hear the slap or she must have heard something? So I just wanted to put that out there. I just wanted to hear it. What do you, what do you all think? Well, she did see her crying, at least. That, that's what we know for, for the most of it. But I think she heard it or she heard Emily crying. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. In, um, in season three, she in episode two, when she's when Emily goes over and she talks to, to Sue, Sue like mentions how awful her parents have been. So I feel like she mm-hmm. she like Austin kind of knew what was happening the whole time and didn't really say anything. Well, Edward wasn't shy about it. I mean, he abused her in the first season one, episode one in front yeah. of the whole family, just tore her down. And then, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, in that circus scene, though, I disagree. I don't think that Sue heard anything. I think intuitively, I think she knew she needed to check on Emily. And she, Mm. I think, was mostly asking in reference to what happened after, like, between the dinner table and her going to her room. I think that's what that question was for, not necessarily where she went into her imagination. Could be, yeah. But I think that's the first time Sue has gone back into her room after the eat shit line. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, totally could be. But I, I think it's it's great that she she's lit she's quite literally Emily's like groundedness into the real world. That's the first yeah. one of the first times we see her bring bring Emily back to reality and like we don't really see any other character do that for her. Yeah. True true. Um so attached to the show, um because you're studying media, what aspect of media would you like to venture into? And then has the show had an influence on you wanting to do uh, work in that space of media? Yeah, so I, I'm i hoping to get into like the enter- entertainment aspect of journalism, because I like, I feel like that field is kind of sorely lacking in like representation and like good interviews, because with Dickinson, I watched literally every single interview or press thing that they did there were some interesting questions but I I always wanted to like deep dive and like I want to be able to ask the people that create stuff anything and everything that has to do with it and with this show like there's so many little aspects that I'd love to know how they thought about it because like each episode has like a different director um Elena was like she like built this whole world and she researched it for years and Haley and Ella and Adrian, they, they work so hard on this show. I can't even like begin to think about how hard some scenes must've been for them to film. And I wish more like journalists kind of like tried to get in and like know about that stuff. And that's something if I were to go into that career, I would do. Do you have a favorite, like a favorite magazine or a favorite online magazine or that does close to what you want to do? Is there anything you could recommend for us? I, this is kind of funny. The guy, so there's this show called Hot Ones and this guy that interviews Sean Evans, he thoroughly, thoroughly researches his guests that he he will always ask them something they've never been asked before. And that's, Hmm. that like kind of inspires me and I want to be able to do that. And I'd love to see like- hot wings. Yeah. 
So they're like, oh, that's trying yeah. to calm down from from like spicy food <laughs> while answering these very difficult questions. Oh no, he's oh, relentless. Yeah. He is relentless. He does not shows them no mercy. They could be burning their lives off, and he is relentless with his questions. But that is so brilliant because physically, right? You think about what their bodies are going through. So physiologically, they're going to be more vulnerable. <laughs> that is so brilliant. I never thought about how what a brilliant. Um, uh, format that is. So going back to the fact that um, you're studying media, you'd like you'd like to venture into entertainment journalism. Um, you had mentioned to me that you wrote a paper for school about Dickinson. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you wrote in that paper? It was for like a, a storytelling class and we had to write about about transmedia. And basically the gist of what that is, is it's when people tell stories that already exist and like expand on it. And that's basically what Dickinson is. It's an, it's an expansion of Emily Dickinson's life in a television show that includes her poetry. So it's using multiple different mediums. And I, I talked about like that and like why it's so interesting, why it's so important that our media pieces do that now. And mostly to get the accurate depiction of what her life was like because if we didn't have the show I don't think many people would even really know the bits of truth that are in the show were accurate about her life or would even have an idea of what her life was like if this didn't exist this applies to every episode because they apply her poems into every single episode with the title and it actually being included in in the episode and trying to write a story just based on her poems is just like really incredible. So I like wrote an entire paper about it. What's one question if you were sitting in front of Elena Smith and you could, you know, ask her anything, you were an entertainment journalist, right? And you you had one like end all be all question. You had one shot. What question would you ask her? You're putting me on the spot here. Um, I got to keep you on your toes. <laughs> I would probably ask her like I would say I would probably ask her how although we we mainly focused on Emily's life how she was able to like deeply characterize these other people in her life like Austin and Sue and Lavinia where we could like connect to them and relate to them just as much as Emily even though they weren't the main aspect of the show or the main history that we know what about you guys one end all be all question what would you ask Elena one question just okay one, one shot she's um, running she's running through an airport you have one chance to you know get her to answer a question elena will you okay. be on our podcast <laughs> there's no way i could ask one there is no way i can ask like the creator of like literally one of my favorite pieces of enter you know historical fiction entertainment that's it it would be please be on our podcast or can i have lunch and ask you a million questions i have one what was the very particular poem from Emily that stood out to you the most that made you create this universe? That's a good one. Mm -hmm. I like that one. What about you, Jay? Uh, mm, if I had to ask, sheesh, that, that's, that's right. Elena, there's just so much you could ask her, right? Oh my God. And it's one end all be all question. I would have to say, if 
you could bring Emily Dickinson back, what would your question be? Not related to her show that she made about her, but like just in general, if she had one question to ask Emily Dickinson, you know, what would it be? Good one. Well, um, I'm actually meeting Ella Hunt in like a few weeks. So I have a question prepared for her. Oh, great. I, I want to ask her, since during press for season two, they couldn't talk about the finale at all. And they didn't talk about it for season three. So I was going to ask her what went into like preparing and executing the fight scene in season two, episode 10. Because I, I can't wrap my head around how hard that must have been for them to do and like to perfect I know they had to shoot it probably like hundreds of times mm-hmm. or if I have time to, I'll also ask her if she improvised any of her scenes. Oh, that's great. Are you doing a one-on-one or like a three-on-one? I'm doing a three-on-one. Oh, I'm doing the, the Q&A, which Jay and Jess, I was going to let you know that I want to submit some questions from the podcast, like not just from me, but um, that's so exciting. That's like good to be one of your first, right? Yeah. First times you get to like exercise the thing you want to do. That's awesome. That's a great scene. Yeah. I'd love to know what was improvised and like what was on the page. Yeah. Either that or, or what really went down in the orchard scene, because I know there's something (laughs) missing and I need to know the truth. (laughs) Yeah. You mean the, the overhead shot, that overhead angle that they were sharing for season three? Yeah. The, Sue like pulled Emily closer and we never saw that in the episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I forgot about that, especially that overhead shot, because that's a very specific, right? You only use that if you're shooting down on somebody. So I guess it could have been shooting down on Emily when Sue's up at the tree. I think I I just generally want to see everything that was on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I we're, we're petitioning for that, that deep box set, and hopefully it'll have deleted scenes in it. Hashtag yeah. Dickinson box set. Guys, I want the honor Baryshnikov blooper reels oh my gosh yes just on a brishnikov well the good yeah. thing is whip entertainment and anonymous content have not blocked me yet <laughs> and i just keep tweeting at them so maybe that means i'm taking that as a yes you're gonna get something i could be totally wrong <laughs> or they're just ignoring you <laughs> that'd oh, be so I won't bad no jess i'm just saying you know big companies don't always write back when they're tweeted at yeah but the social media there's like one social media manager who's like oh my god it's not the whole company it's literally one person <laughs> going like why won't she shut up <laughs> anyway since i'm since i am doing journalism i guess i could i could test it by asking you guys some questions yeah sure let's do it so one of the first ones i had is um we all know music is a big part of the show. I wanted to know, is there any song that that isn't in it that you would include and what scene would you have put it in? Mariah Carey's Why You So Obsessed With Me. <laughs> you would. Via, via um, yeah. <laughs> via, um, Sue to Emily. <laughs> or no, Emily uh, to Sue in season three. <laughs> I know what song, but I'm trying to figure out what scene I would put it to. Can I just say the song and then you guys like throw suggestions on what scene it would go to good? Yeah. Sure. Okay. You could text it to me and I can sing it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Inside Your Mind by 1975. 
Well, that would work for almost any scene where where Emily's in her head. True. But she's had very specific visions, you know? Like, I don't know if that song would fit all of those visions. You think? I don't know. I don't know. It's a bit slow. Yeah. I do not Robin, know that do you song. have an, uh, uh, a song? I don't. I have to say two things that I love um, the soundtrack that DeVoe Yates, the musical supervisor, put together and the fact that um, he was able to get the rights to Ivy, which I think I'm sure was Elena had a big hand in that. I love all the music in there. I am most of the time much more about the score. So I love Drum and Lace and Ian Linquist. I write to their music. And um, so I kind of think more about scoring than I do um, about a soundtrack, but I love Dickinson soundtrack and I've been introduced to so many, uh, to new artists and so many great songs through it that I just, um, I owe to DeVoe. You said Elena probably had a big hand in it. Let's not forget that Haley is, uh, besties with T Swizzle. <laughs> and oh, she's an uh, artist herself. I mean, Afterlife was oh, in season part. one. Haley yeah. dropped the album. Haley dropped the album. <laughs> Yeah. Soon can't be soon enough, bruh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I I I wish that song was played in the credits of season one. I wish it was used in a scene because uh it is such a good song and she I feel like it it works for almost every aspect of the show, like Emily as a person, her relationship with Sue, her relationship with death. But they just I still like where it fits because it's her standing up to her dad in the finale of season one, which you guys are going to get to soon. So I won't like talk too much about it. But um, yeah, I think that's one of the that's one of my personal favorites from the from the soundtrack. Spoiler alert. Uh, if you haven't watched <laughs> Dickinson, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Yes, because we go back and forth all the time. So anybody that's listening to the rewatch, spoiler alert, we have a lot of spoilers. <laughs> so. Any other questions or anything else that you want to don't talk ask me about? how tall I am because I'm not gonna answer that. I mean, I did wanna I did wanna talk about Sue a little more because um I just think that a lot of what she dealt with with the Dickinson family and with her own trauma, it was very like under the surface compared to the other siblings. I feel mm. like um like in these episodes we were we've been talking about in particular her Emily's mom is basically pushing everything she wanted Emily to be onto Sue, almost mm-hmm. as if she's like a like a replacement for what what she wants for Emily. She's putting it onto Sue because she's marrying Austin and becoming her new daughter, as she said. And like Sue doesn't have anyone else to confide in except for the people in that family, even if she doesn't agree with what they're saying and doing to her. So I. I wanted to know what else you guys think about that. I was thinking um, one question I would have for Elena is the choices that she made with Sue's character background and the changes that they did for the show. Um, Because real life Sue did have a sister and did have a brother that were still alive. But in this conversation, it makes me think, well, if you're using dramatic license, which this show uses a lot of, of course, it's like, well, if you cut Sue off from anybody else except for the Dickinsons, that makes for really good character studies you know what i mean but yeah i feel like i feel like in so many ways sue is so trapped and it's a very uh i don't want to say submerged but i feel like the traumas that she goes through you know we see remnants of it like we see the aftermath of her family dying 
we see how she feels about having kids. She gets raped basically. And the only thing the show really does with it is first of, first of all, again, opening us up to have our own opinions of it and our own feelings about it. Um, knowing that that still goes on to this day. But when she comes back, the only time Sue ever really alludes to it is when she's in the conversation with Louise May Alcott. And she, Louise May says, well, I could always be a governess. And she's like, yeah, that's not a great option. Again, beautiful line delivery because it's not this dramatic thing, but that's literally the only time she says anything about it. So that's kind of how I feel like right now that Sue's, you know, more and more kind of trapped. And I think it, um, she kind of parallels Austin in that in that way because she she was going through a lot of the same things as as him when it comes to her story arc and like taking all this like like abuse and hurt from the Dickinson parents and then finally like putting her foot down and demanding what she wants in season three, which yeah. is like amazing. Yeah. I, I was really glad that they turned it around for that because she was very passive the first two seasons. It's an interesting contrast, right? Two characters that have to kind of crawl their way out from what's binding them and what Austin does and what Sue does. Where Sue, where she starts to move things around to try to get what she wants and she confronts. And then Austin doesn't have the facility to do that. So he has to kind of go deep and he goes into the drinking and everything too. But yeah, totally see the parallels. I will say that as in today, back then, it was a much different trap that Sue was in, you know, because she could be in physical danger all the time simply because she was a woman. And there's like this sense of ownership that men have um, that I, Austin didn't have to worry about, you know, like he had his dad, like maybe his dad, he wouldn't get his dad's name, but, it, you know, he was never, he wasn't in the same physical danger as a woman would be in simply because she was a woman. I don't know. For Sue's arc, I feel like we got to see her have a similar journey that Austin did, but it was good to see that even though he went down a darker path in order to like self-heal, that she wasn't like doing anything to heal at all. She was just like covering it up, right? Mm -hmm. So like she would bury it as where Austin buried it in the first two seasons, but in the third season he explodes. Well, in the third season she takes a stand. So they handled it very differently, yeah. even though they had a moderately similar journey with their trauma. It was really nice to see them come together at the end. Like, it was really nice to see them forming what they both need and what they both want. It felt really good to see that. Spoiler alert! <laughs> um, one more thing I, I, I wanted to mention that I don't think we got to talk about was um, how the parents were in the Inferno. I think it like they were able to connect back how they acted in season one and season two into the inferno in season three like with um with like emily's mom like they she's turned into like this baby in the inferno kind of implying that emily's had to take care of her when it should be the reverse and we saw that in the christmas episode because emily was taking care of everything she she even literally put her mom to bed which is often not what the case with the mother and daughter is the mother should be doing that for her so I thought that was really like interesting with them with that and then with Mr. Dickinson he he like just dies and then Sue says oh we can be together now which makes me think that Mr. Dickinson wasn't only just like abusive to to Emily but he was kind of like 
preventing her from doing everything she wanted in her life, including being with Sue, whether that was like intentional of him to do so or not. Yeah, and it was also symbolic of like that death of patriarchy that kind of like stood in their way from doing everything that they wanted. You mentioned Mrs. Dickinson and um, in the Inferno being a baby. How about in um, these episodes for this rewatch, how when she takes her upstairs in the Christmas episode, you know, her whole, you're lovely, Emily, you're lovely. And then she goes upstairs and she's like, you know, I wanted you to get married. You know, of course, paraphrasing, I don't remember the lines, but I could see now you're going to stay here and you're going to take care of me. I mean, think that foreshadowing where all of us were like, oh, that's right. Because the real Mrs. Dickinson had, you know, got very, very sick. So yeah, that was, that was what came up for me was that foreshadowing of Mrs. Dickinson being like, okay, no, you can stay here and take care of me. Yeah, it's interesting that she, she went from wanting Emily to get married and like have children to, to them pushing that idolization onto Sue and considering Emily more of a caretaker instead. Yeah, well, I think maybe that change did come when she got her daughter and Sue, she got to give her that book, right? I mean, if I think about Miss Dickinson, I'm sure she was like waiting. I can't wait to give Emily this book, this book that I got, yeah, The Frugal Housewife. And then, you know, she finally gets to give it to Sue. And then, you know, relating that to when Edward leaves, right? And so her world is destroyed, it seems like. She's like, I have no more tears because your husband's leaving. Like, the person that validates everything she does, you know, every leaf that she cleans out of the chimney and um, that whole Christmas episode, I think we see her break. I don't know. And then maybe she sees Emily while she's drunk, just be like, oh, wait. I, I think it also, um, like in, uh, I think episode six of season three, um, Mrs. Dickinson has like a realization when they're in the, the asylum. And then when they get home, she's like, I'm going to stay in bed for the rest of the year until the war is over. Yeah. Yeah. And then she starts to go again, spoiler alert, but then she starts to go through her change, right? Like where they smoke, she smokes pot with Edward and then he's like, it'd be great to eat. And she's like, go get it yourself. <laughs> like, so interesting. I have to say like with, with the parents, there were some times where, especially in the beginning, I just wanted to see Emily and Sue. I mean, it's ridiculous as a storyteller to say that, where I'm like, just get back to Emily and Sue. Um, but on this rewatch, I'm really enjoying watching their arc, you know, and seeing what they do with Edward, who has these characteristics that are just so unacceptable, but what they mean, what it means to, to watch what he does, going back to the abuse, how not explicitly saying anything in the show or having him pay for that in the show in any huge way opens it up for us to have like a discussion and to think about how the world is today. Speaking of him, there was a lot of, obviously the abuse is very clear in episode seven, but in episode eight, mm -hmm. he, it's very psychological. One of the first things he says before yes. he leaves, or the last thing he says before he leaves is that, Emily, you have nowhere else to go. Yeah, he'd say, you can oh. say that you're going to leave, but you're actually not because where are you going to go otherwise? And such brilliant writing, right? Because all he yeah. says is, oh, Emily, where would you go? I remember the first time I got so pissed watching that, but that's so beautiful, that writing, right? With one really simple line. And uh, at the end, um, Jay mentioned this to me, how um, he gives her the conservatory. It's almost like a, like a way to like get her to forgive him for what he's done or like to get her to like- It's manipulation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, 
And then we see that scene where Emily's like in there and she's like happy and then the door is locked and she can't get out because she, she knows what he's doing to her. Even if this seems like a kind act to everyone else, like Lavinia was kind of jealous that, that he did this for her. To her, it feels like another trap to, to stay there. Yeah, Jess, right? You talk about that syndrome a lot. Yeah, no, I, uh, <clears throat> when, when she's gifted that conservatory for Christmas, I mean, I, I think I mentioned maybe in the last episode or the one before that he finds a way to reward her in his way, reward her for what he's done. So he slaps her in episode seven, but in eight, she gets a conservatory. So he's rewarding her for dealing with his issues yeah it's like when he lashed out at her for i think it was publishing her poetry right and then he goes off on her in front of everyone and then then she gets a maid right after yeah yeah she uses it to her advantage and asks for a maid and then then we meet maggie yeah and she teaches her how to make that bread which is Mm -hmm. which is another thing because he got mad at her for going to the to the school and so emily makes him a bread to kind of like get him off her back for a little bit i don't i yeah. i don't know if there was like a different kind of symbolism for that but that's what i i mean but even then you see the abuse there like she goes and gives him the bread and he just he doesn't even acknowledge her presence or her existence and that's yeah. another form of manipulation or mind games yeah i mean when she made the bread to me it said you know i can play along too if you can play this game i can too even if you can't see it Oh, the games we play. I just wanted to say thanks, Sam. I know we all want to say thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. I can't wait for you to share wherever you're going to share it on Twitter or who knows if you want to come back Oh, after you talk to Ella and do some investigative reporting. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I'm actually going with Luca. He's going to be on the same call as me. Oh, great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great talk. Yes, it's nice to see you again, Sam. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I can't wait to see what the future holds for you. I can't wait to, you know, be on YouTube looking at, you know, interviews yeah. with, you know, a cast and then seeing you asking all the questions because I Thanks. know you're going to be a hard hitter. Thanks. So I really appreciate it. Really excited. Just a quick little message. Uh, we want to say thank you for listening to us and you can follow us on our podcast Twitter at the number four evermore capital p o d and you can follow us on instagram at dickinson.forevermore.podcast that's right and you can hear this podcast on spotify or wherever else that you listen to podcasts damn Double homicide. Double, <laughs> no, don't use my thunder. Mm-hmm. Don't use my uh-huh. thunder. Uh-huh. That's just uh-huh. so funny, though. Yeah, it was relevant. It was relevant. Double Come homicide. Yeah. What? I gotta send you the video, Robin. I gotta send you okay. the video. It's a video. Okay. Thanks. I got called out. I got called at out. At least one of our, at least one of our listeners will know what double homicide is. Yeah. Okay, so now this does have to go in the bloopers. All right. All right, whoever you are out there. Whoever you are out there, (laughs) you know who you are. Okay. (laughs)